0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 506, 506 episodes. Your treat... Today is Saturday, November 26th, 2022, and in this episode, we're going to pick back up where we left off in the last episode, talking about the David French and Indian War, my term, not his. Uh, but first, you know, a delightful thing, a delightful thing, uh, not David French, and uh, not the throwing in the towel on marriage. Uh, which his recent pieces represent uh, for establishment Big Eva conservative Christian uh, types in America. But actually, going back to this topic of Last of the Mohicans, uh, which is a, a great, great film, also a Thanksgiving movie, if you didn't know. I didn't know, but I agree now. I didn't know this, fun fact, my friend... My neighbor, Two Houses Down, J.P. Chavez. Uh, He and his wife, Monica, when they got married, they actually played Promontory from Last of the Mohicans, the soundtrack for Last of the Mohicans. They actually played Promontory, I think he said, when they were done with the exchanging of the vows and they were exiting the sanctuary, which is super cool. He's never seen Last of the Mohicans, so if you see... JP Chavez encourage him, as I am encouraging him, to watch that movie. It's a great, great movie. But uh still, nevertheless, I mean, one of the best parts of the movie is that song, Promontory. It's really fantastic music. And uh it gets my gets my heart pumping every time I hear it. I've got it on my iPhone soundtrack, uh, playlist, what have you. I've been listening to it for years. It's one of those soundtracks that I just love listening to when I'm out and about driving in the Rockies for work, especially. But in any event, we're not talking any more about Last of the Mohicans in this episode. I promise we are going to talk more about not just David French, uh, but also the debate among conservative Christians here in the U.S. at this moment, at this time in our history, about religious liberty and about Christian nationalism and about how Christians should engage in politics. That's been my bread and butter to discuss these things, to think about these things, to debate these things, ponder these things for seven plus years at this point, actually ever since Obergefell versus Hodges, uh, at least in a public way, even before that, more privately, just among friends and families and anyone foolish enough to, uh, (laughs) try and start something on social media or on forums where I was frequenting back in the day. But going back to Carl Truman's David French and the future of Orthodox Protestantism, uh, an article he published yesterday at first things, he says at one point, and I, I think this is great. It's a great observation. Whether conservative Christians ever owned America, there's no question they thought they did. Right, we we thought we did own America, and then, especially with the fell but even before that, Roe v. Wade and Supreme Court rulings on prayer in schools. You know, there's a lot that has been jarring to those who do hold that America was founded as a Christian country, or it was founded with a distinctly Protestant Christian character to be a shining city on a hill. It's been jarring for conservative Christians who are patriotic, who do love their country, who do want to see their country do well, and to do what's right before God and man. It's been jarring for us to see images of LGBTQ flags and promotion in America's name around the world, for instance, for example. It's been jarring here at home to see what's being taught to our kids that is hostile to the things of God, could not be any more anti-Christian at every level. It's been jarring for us. And at a certain point, we have to come to terms with what do we do, right? What has happened? What is happening? What is going to happen? And what's our responsibility? And so that's really the topic of this episode. And I've got a few links that uh, I, I, you know, listened through, took notes as I was listening through yesterday. I don't know if we've got the time for me to get through every last little bullet point, but we're going to try. By golly, we are going to try. You know, before we get into it, though, I want to just say there are times where I wish that I was one of the cool kids like David French. David French is a cool kid, He's an establishment type, he's well-connected, he's got an amazing career, and the liberty that he has, I think he assumes all American conservative Christians also have, and yet by the nature of the career that he's had, by the nature of the business that he's in as a political commentator, as an establishment type, with the connections that he has, he is not vulnerable in the same way that you or I are. He he just isn't. You know, in reading through his piece, which I did this morning, uh, (laughs) at the dispatch, he says that he was so worried that there wasn't going to be sufficient protection for religious liberty after Obergefell. And his worries have turned out to be unfounded. So now he's changed his mind, right? He's changed his mind about uh, the law with regards to marriage, and and he's supporting the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, the Senate's version of it. He wrote two Fridays ago, so a week ago from yesterday, at the Atlantic that he thinks this is good, actually. This is this is good. It just is what it is now. He's got gay friends. He doesn't want to break up their families. It would be too disruptive. Never mind how disruptive Obergefell is still proving to be. He doesn't want to disrupt the gay families that he knows. If you all of a sudden say, you don't have a marriage, actually. You never had a marriage, actually. You don't get those legal protections if Obergefell is overturned. Well... That's that's the only concern, but that's also because he's an establishment character, and the people that he hop knobs with can come through if he needs to call in a favor. He's already articulated a lot of controversial things, but he gets a pass because he took a hardline stance against Donald Trump. I don't think he appreciates, nor does he want to appreciate, what it's like for those who voted for Trump, who have been more outspoken and who don't have the connections that he does. They don't live in the communities that he does. He's not worried about his own liberty because he's already compromised, and he's already said the kinds of things that are going to see him handsomely rewarded and protected. And really, for that matter, too, he's been the kind of character for years who is not going to be first on the chopping block. And yet, what's curious is he... In in his argument for the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, he's presenting an or what, where there would be a threat, there would be a danger. If we don't do this, well, then then maybe we will suffer consequences and we won't have our religious liberty or our right to free speech protected. Well, yeah, but (laughs) it's already gone. If that's your attitude, it's already gone. And you already surrendered yours a long time ago. If you're saying it's such a fickle thing that unless we give, unless we codify, unless we solidify, double down on a Burger write it into the federal code, uh, you're not going to have religious liberty. You're not going to have the right to free speech being protected uh, under the law. Uh, That's that's a very, very concerning concession. And also, it's entirely prudential. And I'm not seeing a lot of principle here. Except, and this does come up again, uh, as you'll see and you'll hear when we talk about these other links, it does come up again and again in the debate about religious liberty more broadly, that on the one hand, you have the principle of what are we permitted as Christians to advocate for, argue for, legislate, require, uh, enforce, potentially through governmental means, through the civil government. What are we in principle allowed to? And then on the other hand, what is prudent for us to require or to legislate or to enforce? Those are two separate questions. But I don't hear David French making any kind of a principled argument, except insofar as he sees prudence as the principle. And I would argue in the opposite direction, along with several others who are featured in uh, the links that J.P. Chavez sent me over the past few days. I would argue in the opposite direction, that it's very prudent to be principled. And not that the highest principle is to be prudent, but that it is very prudent to be principled. Nothing could be more prudent, in fact, because there's a blessing that comes with it. There if we are doing these things or not doing these things just based on what affects our bottom line, or what might prove to affect our bottom line. Uh, then we might as well be a Benedict Arnold. If the English are paying better, uh, hand over the fort, give the intel, you know, uh, tell them uh, the troop positions of your uh, colonial armies so that they can mop them up and let's get this thing over with so we can have the the war behind us and move on to a, a, a resumption of peace. You know, I note in the first of the links that, I surveyed and watched and listened to yesterday while I was remote programming from home. The Threat of Christian Nationalism with Mark David Hall. Mark Thule has him invited to speak, and it's featured at Juicy Ecumenism, which is the blog that Mark Thule runs for his foundation, the Institute on Religion and Democracy. There were Christian symbols at the Capitol on January 6th. And that's being leveraged by the left, by the committed secularists, by the mainstream media. That's being leveraged to support a narrative about so-called Christian nationalism. There were Christian symbols at the Capitol being held up by protesters for the so-called Stop the Steal rally. January 6th, 2020. What's not mentioned, curiously, is that there were already Christian symbols in the capital, and there have been for hundreds of years, and there have been at state capitals across the country for hundreds of years because the founders of this country were Christians, and they had to rely on their Christian faith and the Christian worldview and Christian morality and Christian ethics and Christian conceptions of true and false Right and wrong, fair and unfair, just and unjust, to form our government, to form the United States of America. But as Mark David Hall points out, Christian nationalism, as defined by the critics, is a tool to shame Christians into trying to influence politics and the public debate in the U.S. no more. It's manipulative and it works on people just like David French, unfortunately. Now, Mark David Hall, for his part, he doesn't like the term Christian nationalism. He doesn't want to be identified as a Christian nationalist. He says, you know, look at all the ugly, awful things uh, which are said of Christian nationalists. They're racist, sexist, homophobic, misogynistic, xenophobic. They're all these ugly, awful, horrible things. Well, I'm not those things. I'm, I'm I'm a Christian and I'm not any of those things. I don't want to be called those things. But he points out, rightly so, no one no one was calling themselves a Christian nationalist prior to the relatively recent push to stigmatize conservative Christians who are politically active in the United States of America with this term. Now, since that's started happening, as he points out, you've got characters like Doug Wilson and Stephen Wolf who are embracing the term. I also am inclined to. I think an argument can be made for embracing the term. The term Christian itself was originally a pejorative. It meant little Christ. It was said mockingly of followers of the way, disciples of Jesus, followers of King Jesus, whatever you want to say. Uh, you know, is the best way to describe us. Christian is not found in our New Testament. It's a term that was come up with to mock. Those who believe in Jesus, those who are in Christ and live like it in a very similar way to Christian nationalism, to try and wedge their faith and their activism and their engagement in the public square away from them to get them to stop it. Persecution was tried. Punishment, fines, beatings, arrest, those were all tried. Violent death, torture, taking away of property, all of those were tried. So calling them an ugly name, I mean, that's small potatoes, right? And and actually, too, a small segue here. I note in reading On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman about the psychological cost of war, of teaching men to kill, sending them off to kill or be killed or see their buddies killed around them or to see their buddies killing other people on the battlefield. Grossman in On Killing explains that one of the preliminary moves that's made in getting a country or a people or a group of men on a war footing, getting them psychologically prepared to go and take other human lives in war, is dehumanizing your opponent, your enemy. Call them something else that doesn't feel so human. And that, in effect, creates psychological distance, which is necessary to overcoming the psychological barrier to taking human life. And so here also, I think in our context, even though there's a lot of debate about religious liberty and how much we have and how much we might not have in the future, And there's some valid concern that if we don't play our cards right, we will see a reduction of the respect for Christians to be able to live in a Christian way without persecution. We need to recognize that one of the preliminary moves of a government or a demographic in society before they start persecuting Christians is they start saying some ugly, mean, awful, nasty things about them, to dehumanize them, to silence them, to marginalize them, to create psychological distance. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that in this term, Christian nationalism, mostly rejected when it's used as an accusatory, but in some cases being embraced, internalized. All right, you want to call me a Christian nationalist? I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get to work on defining what that is and how it's a good thing actually. Mark David Hall thinks that's imprudent of Doug Wilson, Stephen Wolf, folks like them, folks like us, I suppose, probably. He does not think we should embrace the term. He also points out that a lot of the guys who are embracing the term are post-mill, post-millennial in their eschatology. He's, he points out, uh, Jonathan Lehman also does, that this is a motivating factor for why Some conservative Christians are embracing Christian nationalism as a term instead of running from it because they have a very optimistic view of the arc of history. Based on their interpretation of end times prophecy, they believe that the kingdom of God is sallying forth and the gates of hell will not withstand it and that we're seeing that here on earth and that we need to be a part of it. We need to enthusiastically, cheerfully, roll up our sleeves and get to the work of defining what it looks like in our particular context. What should our contribution be to it? Not, is it good? Is it bad? No, it's good. Now, how do I get in on some of that? Now, Mark David Hall, many of the others who are debating uh, this in the links that I reviewed, which I'll share in the description for this podcast. You can check them out as well. There's a lot of very interesting material here, lots of good food for thought, a lot of the guys that are discussing these things are not themselves post mill in these links, but it is interesting to see the debate back and forth between those who are post millennial and those who aren't. What stands out and what's concerning and what's important versus essential versus getting in the way. Now, another thing too, Mark David Hall, he says, you know, even as somebody would not embrace the term, he doesn't think it's prudent for Doug Wilson and Stephen Wolfe to embrace the term. He says, most of the work warning of Christian nationalism in recent years is very unserious, but the most serious work he has encountered was published by Oxford Press. Authors Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry wrote Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. And that work actually tries to measure how big of a problem is this? As they see it, they see it as a problem. How big of a problem is Christian nationalism in the United States? But the way that they go about trying to measure with the questions that they're asking, say, for instance, do you believe that public schools should allow teachers to lead their students in Christian prayer? Do you believe that Christian catechism should be Uh, taught in American public schools? Do you believe that Congress should come out with a declaration saying that America is a Christian nation? Do you believe that America was founded as a Christian nation? If you believe these things, if you agree with these statements, well, then you are, according to Whitehead and Perry and Oxford Press, a Christian nationalist. Now, interestingly, and I love that Mark David Hall points this out, over 60% of African-Americans could be defined as Christian nationalists according to this metric by Whitehead and Perry's own rubric. But it's only a problem. It's only a problem to the mainstream media and to the left when it's white Americans. Very curious. And this is because in my view, Christian nationalism is just the rebranding, the remix of the smear against Republicans and conservatives that we are white nationalists. See, they had to drop the white nationalist thing a little bit or at least scale that back, put it on the back burner when it became clear that increasingly people of color agree with this so-called white nationalism that's not white nationalism at all. There are white nationalists, but that's not what I'm about. That's not what mainstream conservative flyover country America Conservative Christians are about. We're not about white nationalism. Ah, well, okay. So so then you're just Christian nationalists, but it's only a problem if you're white or we're only going to touch it when you're white. And then we'll kind of still actually throw in characters like Clarence Thomas and say that they're white nationalists. Really? He's black though. Yeah, he's a white nationalist. Candace Owens, white nationalist. Andy Goh, white nationalist. Ben Shapiro, white nationalist. Yeah, but he's Jewish. Yeah, I don't care. He looks white. He's wearing a yarmulke. Yeah, he's, so what? Right? So that's the way that it works, is you call whoever you disagree with a racist. And and actually, there's a, a Jewish woman who attends this lecture at the Institute on Religion and Democracy. There's a Jewish woman that speaks up. And she says she had recently been asked to speak at a conference where a whole bunch of protesters showed up yelling and screaming and cursing at her that she was a... Christian nationalist. And She says, I'm Jewish. I'm not, I'm not a Christian nationalist. I'm Jewish. But I do believe I would actually be defined by Whitehead and Perry as a white Christian nationalist by their definition. And that's all because I do believe that America was founded as a Christian nation by Christians with Judeo-Christian values and that that's a good thing And that we should protect that and we should honor that and we should cherish that. We should preserve that. We should expand on that, not scale it back, not abolish it, and not revise history in a way that denies that. But she points out, she says, you know, the, the tactic of the left has been for decades to just call whatever gets in their way racist so they can knock it down, so they can silence anybody who objects to their program and their plan. This is just the latest iteration of it. It's not in. It, it's not an accusation that's made in good faith. In other words, and so we shouldn't be responding to it like it is. Nevertheless, Mark David Hall thinks we should reject the term Christian nationalism because it's unconstitutional. Which I I don't understand. I don't understand why we would say this is a term used in bad faith. It doesn't actually. Uh, only describe the people uh, you, you would disagree with. It also describes you yourself with how broadly it's defined. It even includes this Jewish woman. Why, why would we say that on the one hand and then say ah, but we should still reject it because it's unconstitutional, right? You're you're just internalizing the disingenuous attacks of your opponent. That you're allowing them to control the language and therefore win the debate. But Mark. David Hall says it's unconstitutional because equality, because Congress can't endorse one religion over another. More on that as we go, but I will come back to it. Uh, He also says it's unbiblical because we should do unto others as we want them to do unto us. In other words, if we don't want our kids going to public school and being led in prayer by Muslims, then we ought not to insist that Muslim kids go to a public school and be led in our Christian prayers. I think that's a very superficial incorporation of Christian faith into political engagement, but it still nevertheless rests on the presumption that our Christian faith must inform. God's word must inform. God's commands, his precepts must inform our engagement in the political discourse. I think it's a very superficial incorporation. And again, we'll get into more of why that is as we go. But Mark David all doesn't believe Christians should receive any special protections just because they are Christians under the law? He points to religious toleration and equal protection of the law is going back to the founding. I don't, I, I don't know who would disagree with that. Maybe Stephen Wolf would, maybe Doug Wilson would, but I'm not so sure. I think that again is a smear, that's an accusation. It's like the penumbra in the Constitution, where you can open Pandora's box and you can read into the Bill of Rights anything you want to be unrestrained by the government and by society from doing. Anything whatsoever. As long as you say it's it's in the unenumerated rights in the penumbra of the Constitution, well, then you have a right to do anything and everything you want, except you don't, as it turns out. As it has turned out since that argument was made, you don't with regards to Many things related to economics, but you do with regards to libertinism and abortion, curiously enough. I think we can't forget that the argument from secularists is that Christianity informing our legislators at all, in any meaningful way, is the same as Christianity receiving preferential treatment by the U.S. government. There's an apology tour aspect to saying Oh, we're sorry, we don't want any special treatment. Yeah, but what if your whole religious claim is we have the monopoly on the pure truth? Now, you could say everybody has access to general revelation, sure, but that's not sufficient. And if it is, well then, why would the Christian engage in the political discourse at all at all? And what happens if you're listened to? Then it goes right back to the claim of the secularists, of the atheists, of the leftists. If you don't advise the government, your legislators, your elected representatives, at all at all as to human dignity, treating people made in God's image with fairness, justice, respect, unless you won't be listened to for fear of violating this very superficial, very simple, and not in a good way, Uh, interpretation of our Christian responsibility just to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, not do unto others as we would have them not do unto us. And that must therefore mean we don't insist that this is true and that's false that you're claiming. I think we get exactly what we've gotten. I, I think that is how we got to where we're at. And unfortunately, I think this is part of how the likes of a Mark David Hall get to be Herbert Hoover, distinguished professor of politics at George Fox University. So inviting them to speak from their credentials when part of how they got the credentials is by embracing the establishment status quo understanding of these things. It's a foregone conclusion. You're going to get more of what got us into this mess in the first place. Sorry. You almost have to have somebody who is an outsider like Doug Wilson or Stephen Wolf speaking into the debate and mixing it up and saying, well, wait a second. Is that true? Actually, does that hold up under scrutiny? Is that rightly handling the word of truth? Yes, you're handling the word of truth. I understand it. But are you rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth? Maybe you should study more to show yourself more approved workmen. But Mark David Hall references Abraham Lincoln as not saying God is on our side. We want to be like that when, as Christians, We refuse to ask for preferential treatment. Uh, Mark David Hall, with respect, sir, you should also tell the rest of the Abraham Lincoln quote. Lincoln says, we want to be on God's side since God is always right. That's, I think, what the vast majority of so-called Christian nationalists are arguing for. We want to be on God's side since God is always right. And not, and not... To say, I want to be on God's side, but even though God is always right, I'll compromise with you so you like me, so I can stay gainfully employed, so I can have peace, right? Moving on, the next link, which uh, I thought was very, very fascinating as well, Baptists and Religious Liberty, Carl Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement. Uh, This is an SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, conversation. Matt Emerson, Corey Higdon, Jonathan Lehman, Joe Rigney, Andrew Walker, these five academics sat down and discussed this question of how do Baptists in particular, and let's let's take a step back from all Protestants for a second, how do Baptists specifically, historically view this question of religious liberty? that David French is very, very concerned about, and that's why he wants to support the Respect for Marriage Act. Please, 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 just leave us our religious liberty. You can do whatever you want with marriage. Just leave us our religious liberty. Matt Emerson, for his part, points out Baptists have been persecuted in centuries past for being nonconformists, and they have long advocated for religious liberty accordingly. Baptists also have long had a rich tradition of political engagement as an outworking of Christian faith and practice, not something that is at odds with our Christianity for us to be politically active and engaged, even though we are advocates for religious liberty. He points out this is probably the biggest difference between Baptists and Anabaptists. Anabaptists were like Mennonites, Opposed to Christians serving in law enforcement, the military, or government generally, because Christ's kingdom is not of this world, lest his children would fight. So, okay, Baptists remember being persecuted for being nonconformists. They want religious liberty. That's part of why they're engaged politically, is to get that religious liberty, so that they can worship God according to the... according to the dictates of their conscience. They come to the United States of America. They set up shop. They heavily influence uh, the formation of this country, along with Presbyterians, along with Puritans. That's a large part of how America gets the distinctly Protestant character that it does. Corey Higdon is the next to speak. He talks about Williams, Roger Williams, and his having been... 1603 to 1683, an English-born American Puritan minister, theologian, author, very critical of the Quakers because the Quakers were insisting on such a radically extreme definition of religious liberty that, as Williams pointed out, to carry it that far and to tolerate that would take us all into barbarism. So, Corey Higdon points out in the history of comments by Roger Williams that we have a tradition in this country of early on some concerns being raised about, let's say, for instance, Quakers holding that you cannot take a vow, no oaths. You can't swear an oath of office, so therefore you can't run for political office. You can't be in government. You can't serve in the military because you can't take an oath to serve to obey, to lay your life down for your country. You Can't take an oath? Well, then you can't testify in a trial. At a certain point, we say, all right, you have some religious liberty, but there are limits. Religious liberty can't become an excuse, men were pointing out in Roger Williams's day. It can't become an excuse for lawlessness, where you have no responsibility whatsoever to respect authority. There have to be limits. Jonathan Lehman is the next up after Corey Higdon has warned about colonizing the past or being captivated by presentism. Here comes Jonathan Lehman and I think he brings some of that presentism to his attitude like French does. There's a seeming inability to think about how it has not always been just like it is right at this moment. And is that okay? That it was different and other prior to this? Also, do we recognize that it's, all, it's going to change again. It's going to change just like it changed from the way that it was to the way that it is now. It's going to change again from the way that it is now to the way that it's going to be in the future. And we have a responsibility for part of how that looks, what form that takes, based on our choices, based on what we're arguing, based on what we say is true and good right now. But Jonathan Lehman he points out in centuries past, like the late 18th, when the Constitution of the United States of America was drafted, debated, ultimately adopted. Debates about religious liberty primarily centered on differences about the sacraments, and that's a very important observation. I have some differences with Jonathan Lehman. I I found in uh, this video and then also the one where he's debating with Bradford Littlejohn, I find I have more agreement, more of an appreciation for Jonathan Lehman than I did just from reading his Nine Marks piece. But it is important to note that the establishment clause in the Constitution about Congress not making any laws concerning the establishment or prohibition thereof of a church, there should be a separation of church and state. That idea, uh, from documents concurrent with the founding of the United States of America, that idea was communicated at a time when religious liberty primarily had to do with differences about baptism, for instance, the Lord's Supper, for instance, church polity, for instance, whether we're going to use the Book of Common Prayer or not, for instance. And yet in our day, in our neo-pagan moment, religious liberty is a lot more difficult to define because how do we define what religion is when so many people are irreligious? So one opportunity we have is to take the functionalist approach. That might be the most appropriate given our circumstances, but the functionalist approach says even if you're non-religious, you still hold to something, some highest good principle, what have you, let's say scientism, for instance, which is religious in nature. But if then we take that Functionalist approach to defining what religion is so that we understand what religious liberty looks like in our context, that gets very challenging. That gets very challenging because then everybody is entitled to their own private morality. And then, ladies and gentlemen, this is how you get to the book of Judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So, what's the solution? Lehman points out the Obama administration tried to quarantine Christian morality. That was their view of religious liberty. We're going to quarantine Christian morality in such a way that it can't constrain anyone else's private individual definition of what is religiously correct, moral, good. And on the flip side, conservative Christians have responded with with one of two ways, right? One is, and I appreciate the evocative descriptor here, the Lord of the Rings reference, There's a Helm's Deep approach. That is, let's all fall back to the fortress, haul ourselves up with all the food and water that we can keep ourselves sustained with. Our women, our children, our fighting men will make a courageous last stand or wait until this all blows over, then we'll come out again. And you know what? Uh, (laughs) Lehman seems to favor that view. Um, French also favors that view. I would say Rod Dreher, from what I've read, favors something of that view. The Helm's Deep approach, fall back, build Christian community, build strong local churches, build strong Christian families, Christian homes, homeschool your kids, send them to Christian schools where they'll get a classical Christian education. On the other hand, the approach we could take is the hearkening back to uh, magisterial Protestantism. Let's go back to the Reformation and let's talk about Geneva. Let's talk about John Calvin. Let's talk about Martin Luther. Let's talk about John Knox. Let's talk about the Reformers and how they viewed the responsibility of Protestant Christians in relation to government. Either way, Christians may need to constrict, Lehman says, our definition of religious liberty in order to call for civil government to prohibit and permit what is proper for a government to permit and prohibit in the way of morality on all people, irrespective of whether they agree or disagree on right and wrong. Either way, the Helmsteep approach or the return to magisterial Protestantism. Now, this latter view is Joe Rigney's, and Joe Rigney's the next to speak And he points out that the differences between Protestant denominations and traditions pale in comparison to the similarities in our view of the magisterium. Classical Protestantism has a consistent set of principles that form the basis for a consensus irrespective of denominational differences. For instance, we recognize a distinction between the soul and the body or between belief and practice or between what's temporal and what's eternal, between also law and punishment. Laws are not just, you are permitted to do this, you are not allowed to do that. If you do this, we will punish you. That, That is involved in law, but law also is instructional. It's also pedagogical. That is, it teaches. Laws also have a circumstantial aspect. So the punishment can vary for lots of reasons based on the circumstance. Protestants have always held to that. Also, Protestants recognize a distinction between natural law and revealed law. So you have general revelation, then you have special revelation. And according to the magisterial Protestant view articulated by Joe Rigney, all the various spheres of legitimate Authority instituted by God are instituted for our benefit, and they can know that. They can know it and they can say it, and they ought to direct human beings toward the eternal and heavenly good with all of the instruments at their disposal. That might be the rod in the hand of a parent, spare the rod, spoil the child, corporal punishment, discipline of a child by their parents. That might be the sword in Romans 13, which the governing authority does not bear for nothing. That might be the so-called heavenly keys for the church. We can excommunicate you. We can put you under church discipline if you are living in an ungodly way. We can remove you from fellowship to bring you to repentance. But the state According to Joe Rigney and according to magisterial Protestantism, the state is competent to command behavior, not belief, to the end of punishing evil and rewarding good. That's what Romans 13 says. And there's a lot of talk here that you have to become familiar with if you're going to know what to make of this debate. There's a lot of talk of two tables of law that go together or don't in the New Covenant. Do they or don't they? Should they or shouldn't they? Should Christians call for these two tables of law to be both alike the domain of the civil government? Now, what is that about? Well, if we look at the Ten Commandments, it's very simple. The first table of the law is the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So that's the first table of the law. The second table of the law, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. Joe Rigney says classical Protestantism, a return to the magisterium, would be to say these two tables of the law go together and the state is competent to command behavior in relation to both tables without expecting we are regulating belief. And we place restrictions on religious liberty, as everyone admits, in some cases. So, for instance, if your religion says that it's okay to offer a human sacrifice of some random stranger you came across because that's what your God wants, is a human sacrifice, this one will do, you do not have religious liberty that extends so far as that being acceptable and protected and there's no consequences. No, no. Right. So that's second table with regards to how you relate to your neighbor. But this first table, that's very, very concerning for those, especially Baptists who say, we've seen that done before and it, it didn't go well. But Joe Rigney, he makes an important point. We should avoid principles that would condemn the Torah as immoral or unjust, we should also avoid principles and a political philosophy that would condemn every governmental system as unjust, wicked, tyrannical, totalitarian, repressive, unfair prior to the 1970s. We're already seeing and experiencing the alternative when our view of religious liberty is overly broad. We get De facto atheism, de facto godlessness. And so Joe Rigney has a simple call to action. He says, let's be Protestants, which is (laughs) which is great. I mean that elicits a, a small chuckle and a wry grin from anybody who's not sure what else to make of what he's saying. Hey, I'm just saying let's be Protestants. This is Protestantism. 101, guys. Andrew Walker, he also speaks, he talks about civil religion. And he's got a definition for civil religion. You might also think cultural Christianity, but he says, civil religion is the cultural utility and accommodation of religious doctrines, symbols, and life to the end of legitimizing and solidifying the identity and cohesion of a social and political community. What does that actually mean? It's very simple. This is our religion. This is what we as a community believe about God. And about ourselves. This is our religion. This is part of how we know who we are as a people. This is part of what makes us a people is that this is our religion. We worship God corporately together. We serve God. We relate to one another. We carry out our relationships before God consciously, openly, deliberately. He points out most Baptists have had a very negative view of civil religion, an only negative view that it's a bad thing. But we need to pull back from that and have a positive view of civil religion as well, because civil religion, it just is. it It is. It's inescapable. We're going to have some kind or another of civil religion. So we want a good one, right? Now, what are some reasons Baptists might be opposed to civil religion? For one, cultures don't get saved. Individuals do. A culture strictly speaking, cannot be a Christian. A Christian is a Christian. A culture is a culture. Also, we don't want to minimize the importance of the church just because you have a so-called Christian culture. Also, too, as he points out, particularly in the Bible Belt down south, calling people to faith in Christ who are just sure they're already Christians is very difficult. They think they're Christians because they live in a Christian culture. Ah, but you're not a Christian. Ah, but I am. But you're not, though. That's a very challenging conversation to have if you know that they're not actually Christians, but they think they are. Also, we don't want to affirm as Christian existing power structures that are corrupt or evil just because they exist in a so-called Christianized culture. That also happened in the South. At least according to him, we have that on display in Jim Crow laws, anti-miscegenation laws, slavery. But there are reasons why we need to think more deeply, more meaningfully about civil religion or Baptists should. But I think if Baptists should, then we all should. For one, it can leaven society to understanding Christian morality. It can set the table for us calling people to Christ. Also, too, there is a salt and light effect that even non-Christians enjoy when a culture has more Christians and more Christianity influencing it, that culture is more inclined towards forgiveness, grace, mercy, patience, kindness as a result, and that is good for everyone. Also, too, he points this out, and I, I lead with this in my book on homeschooling, Nature Abhors a Vacuum, Horror vacui. What do we expect to fill the vacuum as Christianity recedes? We don't have to wonder. We're seeing secular progressivism. We're seeing radical leftism. The vacuum pulls hostile, pagan, -pagan, neo-pagan, anti-Christian ideas and conceptions of justice and what is right and what is fair in neutrality just can't be sustained. It can't. It never has been. It never will be. But Christianity, it communicates cultural norms, which whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you have to appreciate, you have to recognize. I love that Andrew Walker brings up Douglas Murray. I'll never forget listening to a back-and-forth debate between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, moderated by Douglas Murray in Dublin from several years ago. And this is one of the things that Douglas Murray brings up as not just an atheist, but also as a homosexual, openly, he brings up that the dreams we dream in the West are still Christian dreams. He's quoting someone else, I don't remember who. But the dreams we dream are still Christian dreams in the West. And we see how it's going for Europe. What's filling the vacuum in Europe, as Christian civilization recedes and is replaced with secularism, actually we're getting radical leftism that wants to self-terminate and we're also seeing Muslims brought in from the Middle East who are willing to have children, who are willing to work and build their own insular communities that are very hostile to Western civilization. Very resistant, also very hostile, very resentful. He quotes Oz Guinness, Celebrate the naked public square all you want, but when the reality of winter sets in, you start looking for clothes. In other words, I would say there's no atheist in a foxhole. It's one thing in theory to say it's going to be so much better when Christianity is no longer cultural and only the real true Christians remain. I love this turn of phrase too from Andrew Walker. He says we need this pedagogical intermediary between hyper-individualism and totalitarianism. And the founding fathers understood that. They knew that. They recognized it. They were very conscious and intentional in their incorporation of Christian language and presumptions and conceptions in our founding documents and in their way of organizing the government into three branches, dividing the powers, having checks and balances. The founders understood that religion was critical, essential to virtue and morality, which are in turn essential. This is, again, something Os Guinness articulates, essential to liberty. You cannot sustain liberty without virtue and morality and belief in God. So then Walker proposes we stop posturing as though we're just sure driving Christianity to the margins of society is going to purify Christianity. It might not, actually. It might not. And what if it doesn't? There's a quote from Tertullian, which I've heard many times. I've never heard it questioned. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Andrew Walker points out that's not canonical. We should not take that as a promise. There might be some truth to it, but that doesn't mean that it's infallible. And it doesn't mean we should pray for and hope for our Christian brothers and sisters in this country to be violently martyred. We should welcome that. We should invite that in. I'll never forget several years ago, I was having a debate with my cousin her and her husband, Max, working with Crew, which formerly was Campus Crusade for Christ, but then they rebranded because crusades are triggering. But we were debating this topic of Syrian refugees being brought to the U.S. And she says, well, yeah, but even if it brings persecution, which is what I was saying, it's going to lead to increased persecution of Christians here in the U.S. Muslims typically are not very tolerant of Christian evangelism. Christian life, especially as they become the majority, there's a tension there that we're going to see more and more of. She says, oh, yeah, but, you know, it would be good for Christianity to be persecuted here in the U.S. And I just think to myself, and I've thought it ever since, you don't know what you're praying for. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're saying. We can't stand up under persecution right now, even when it's in its mildest form. What makes you think when it's violent, we're going to do better? And the presumption is, clearly, that's going to clear out all the hypocrites. Has God promised that this is going to be a good thing, that this is actually a happy thing we should look forward to and contribute to actively? Also, too, Andrew Walker points out that in criticizing civil religion here in the United States, we are criticizing the efforts of Christians who preceded us and also our cultural inheritance. And that doesn't get enough play. That that is not... Picked up on often enough. It isn't to say all the Christians who went before us were perfect and everything they said and did was quite right. Obviously, if we can push back on Tertullian's quote there, we can also question whether some of the reformers, some of magisterial Protestantism was quite correct. Absolutely. But there's too much of what was warned about by Corey Higdon colonizing the past. We see it everywhere. We see it inside the church, just like we see it outside the church. It's being brought into the church from outside the church. It's not towards the end of repentance. It's deconstructionism, which is actually just destruction. Also, too, an important note, civil religion is an effect of missional efforts, not the cause of them. And I'm, I'm not sure that I know whether that's true always. I think it can be both and. I think primarily it's an effect. But insofar as we might think civil religion is this bad, bad thing to be avoided at all costs, that will change the way in which we are engaging in missions. Just like if we think civil religion is the highest good, it will change the way that we engage in missions. If we think civil religion is to be avoided at all costs as an absolute corruption of Christian faith, that there's no community aspect or that we wouldn't want national repentance, national revival, because that would only be hypocrisy. It's going to change the way in which we make disciples, have fellowship, teach, handle the word of truth. And I don't think for the better. I think actually much for the worse. But moving on. Lastly, but not least, religious liberty and the common good debate hosted by Colorado Christian University and the Davenant Institute. The Davenant Institute, founded by Bradford Littlejohn, I'm not terribly familiar with. I at least know Colorado Christian University is here in Colorado. Uh, This one, Bradford Littlejohn on the one hand, Jonathan Lehman again on the other. Bradford Littlejohn loves kittens, but there's something amiss in a culture where people call their cats their children or their dogs, as the case may be. I just found out recently that my brother in law and his girlfriend are pregnant. It's a girl. And part of their announcement is a picture of her dogs saying that they're getting ready to be uh, big sisters. I'm sorry, with respect, our dogs and our cats are not our children. It's a common sentiment, it's a common attitude, but it's a mistake. We can say, we enjoy kittens, they're very adorable, they're very cute, we love puppies, they're so cuddly. But if somebody gets up and they say, hey, wait a second, you know, our ancestors have not always been so unrestrained in their affection for embracing of, pampering of dogs and cats. And maybe they were right in some of their framing of how we should relate to uh, keeping animals. In our day, just like with religious liberty, and this is Bradford Littlejohn's point, you will provoke a very sharp, strongly worded emotional reaction. How dare you? What's your problem with kittens? Why do you hate kittens? Why do you hate puppies? You're a monster. How can you be so unkind? Well, hold on a second. It's like that with religious liberty. It's like that with kittens. We put limitations if we want to have a good end. So there are only so many cats that you should probably own. There are only so many dogs you should probably own within a confined space. After that point, you're risking your health and the health of everyone else in the household. Having a cat, not such a bad thing, especially if you're trying to keep the mice down. Having a dog, not a bad idea, especially if you want... Someone to bark when uh, a burglar is trying to break in in the middle of the night. Not such a bad idea. Having 20 dogs in the house? Well, wait a second. Okay, I think we've got a problem. Something has misfired. Little John asks the question, should abortion be protected as a matter of religious liberty? To where if your religion says abortion is just fine, we can't prohibit it? No. he, He thinks not. I also say absolutely not. But an overemphasis on religious liberty leaves us blind to the religious and the moral nature of government. You cannot tell people to not do things and to do other things or to do certain things in a certain time, in a certain way, in a certain process, or not at all, unless you have some idea of what is right and wrong. Where do you get that idea of what is right and wrong? If you say there is no such thing as right and wrong, well, then you've also just invalidated the whole basis for government, unless it's going to be arbitrary. An interesting thing, and I would love to research this still further, but Little John claims most U.S. states until recently had laws on the books against blasphemy. And that isn't to say that we absolutely must Necessarily should, but this is not a question of can we, have we ever, would it be fundamentally un American to do so? I mean, the Supreme Court and the ACLU will definitely take their position. Increasingly, generations that have been raised in the public schools that are dominated by the left and secular progressives will say, Ah, you absolutely cannot, that's totally unconstitutional. But it's a curious thing. We didn't think it was unconstitutional until very recently. It's a very curious thing. Our forebears didn't think that it was unconstitutional. They might have been wrong, but also we might be wrong. He also delves into why do unto others as you would have them do unto you is an overly simplistic response here. And this goes back to the point that was being made by Mark David Hall at the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay, well, does that mean we shouldn't give law enforcement firearms because they might use them against us? Does that mean we shouldn't want teachers to have the authority to tell students they got the right or the wrong answer because they might get those reversed? Law always makes truth claims. You are always going to be empowering a government to do unpleasant things that you wouldn't want to have done to you. But that's also part of the implicit threat that is baked into Romans 13. He does not bear the sword for nothing. As in, you should be afraid if you are doing what is evil. But that is also to say, you should not do evil, which Paul also writes in Romans 13. So there's a naivety to only going that far. There's a simplicity and not in a good way. To only going that far and saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah, well, I wouldn't like for somebody to call the police on me, but I'm still going to call the police if somebody breaks into my home in the middle of the night and they're armed. Or I'm going to have my wife call them. I'm going to go get my handgun or my AR and confront the intruder and probably shoot them if they don't get out right now. You know, Romans 13 is touched on by Bradford Littlejohn, he says the Decalogue has historically been held by Christians as communicating general revelation about right and wrong, good and evil. We recognize this as not just special revelation. Thou shalt not murder. You all know, regardless of whether you're a Christian or a Jew, you all know that it's wrong to murder. You all know that it's wrong to bear false witness against your neighbor in a court of law. You all know that it's wrong to steal from your neighbor. So this is communicating general revelation, not just special revelation. These things are self-evidently true. And if you do them anyways, you can't just hide behind religious liberty and say, ah, yes, but in my religion, it's okay. Or in my religion, it's okay to steal from somebody who's of a different religion or to lie to you if it advances my religion. Also, too, government has jurisdiction over the external world of man, not the internal world of his heart and mind, but that is to say... You can't blur the distinction between the external world and the internal world to such a point that government is not allowed to stop you or tell you no. And that's exactly what the left has done in its jurisdictions in Chicago, in New York City, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, because they don't recognize that distinction between the soul and the body. If you dress up like a woman, you are a woman. If you get a double mastectomy and take testosterone and grow an Adam's apple and your voice deepens, well, then you are a man. As long as you say you're a man, you are a man. Also, if you come into a store and you shoplift and you run off with all this stuff, well, who are the police to tell you no, you can't do that and stop you and try to stop you and then get into a a violent tussle and possibly shoot you and you die? Who are the police to tell you no? Oh, the police, they need to justify that they have any right to stop you from breaking the law but it's lawlessness. That's not a maximization of liberty. That is the destruction of liberty. It's the deconstruction of society, but it's the destruction of society. As my cousin Sterling was pointing out, Little John brings up the war on drugs. And he says, it's often criticized as possibly making more people want drugs because drugs are illegal. And I think there's something to that, something to that. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't make anything illegal though. The inverse is true also, as he points out, that things being legal teach society, teach communities, teach the individual that their government regards as good or legitimate those things that are legal. So, what's Jonathan Lehman's response? Again, editor, chief editor at Nine Marks. He is very self consciously a Baptist, arguing in defense of religious liberty as a Baptist. And he says his concerns are primarily pastoral. He talks a lot about his teenage children, young adult children. He says that they need Jesus. They don't need the law. That's the end of the Aristotelian question of Christian political philosophy. What's the art aiming at? Uh, Little John asks that question. Lehman answers. He says they need Jesus. That's what they need. He also says they don't need to be treated as children if they're adults. If they're adults, they need to be treated like adults, not children. So we're infantilizing them. If we're enforcing the first table of the law, we're treating everybody like children. Insofar as the second table is informed by the first, yes, the reformers were right about that, but that doesn't mean that the civil government should legislate according to the first table. That's wrong. And this, again, this is right back to the prudential and principled reasons why we might engage with these things. He says it didn't work for Israel. It's not going to work for anybody else. And that we don't criminalize violations of the first or second commandment in our own homes. I would push that a little bit. Lehman's a pastor, author. Does he not have any kind of repercussions if his children use the name of the Lord in vain in his home? Highly doubtful. But he really is bothered by the idea that we would treat adults as children. Adults aren't children, but adults are told to become like little children to inherit the kingdom of heaven, but also... Treating adults like children doesn't work, but then neither does treating children like children. So I don't know. What the hell is he actually saying? It's hard to tell. He is very concerned, though, that as he references Isaac Bacchus, the same sword that Constantine drew against the heretics, Julian drew against true converts. And how can you be sure your vision of the Christian family if if we draw this analogy like little John does, he says, you know, we and not just little John, also uh, the guys that, got together with a panel discussion for the Carl Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement. We don't recognize it as a violation of our children's religious liberty. If as Christian parents, we say, you're coming to church with me at Sunday. So then why would it be a violation of our liberty if the government says we're going to legislate morality according to God's word, whether you are or are not? a Christian. But Jonathan Lehman, he pushes back on that. He says, how do you know that it's your vision of the Christian family that's being implemented and not Joe Biden's? And to that, I would say, that's just it. Right now, it is Joe Biden's. That's what those who are saying neutrality is a myth are getting at. It is Joe Biden's vision of the Christian family, which looking at his family, that's not a very Christian family, but that's what we're getting. Lehman asks, Also, too, if the early church didn't need the sword to advance Christian faith, why do we? I think this is a claim that is not being made by the people who Lehman is debating. You take this rationale too far, and you could say the same thing for automobiles and smartphones. The early church didn't have those either, but it doesn't mean it's wrong for us, too. I don't like like the claim being made that our children need the freedom to make a decision to reject God, to worship other gods, because... I think that is a cop-out in very many cases. In very, very many American so-called Christian cases, we say, my child needs to be free to reject God, so I'm going to send my child to people who will train and indoctrinate my child to reject God and to think it ridiculous that I'm a Christian. No, this is not so noble as you're trying to pretend. This is you wanting to go with the flow and enjoy the benefits, like David French of selling out because it's very comfortable because everybody likes you then because you're the last one to really, truly get persecuted that way. But nobody's arguing to the contrary. You know, this point he says, Chuck children, our children need the freedom to make their own decisions about whether they're going to trust Jesus and follow after him. Nobody's disagreeing with that. Nobody's saying anything to the contrary. It's a straw man argument. It's a bit of a cheap shot, just like he did in his nine marks. Piece that I recently talked about on this podcast. Uh, He brings up Peter wanting to pick up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and we being tempted to be like Peter and pick up the Garden of Gethsemane sword. But I would say he's either accidentally or deliberately mischaracterizing those who are trying to remind the church of Romans 13 as instructive for more than just absolute submission to an arbitrary totalitarian state. I could be wrong. I could be wrong about who it is that he's listening to and hearing that needs to be told that, but the shoe does not fit so far as I can tell. The Garden of Gethsemane is not the only place in the New Testament where swords show up. Also Romans 13. But he says, this is a question of advancing the kingdom through the logic of power or advancing it through weakness like we're called to. Uh, You know, I think We've been seeing that for 50 years, that the logic has been carried very far along the lines that Lehman is arguing already. The kingdom has been advanced through weakness, through meekness, through conciliation, through compromise. Do Christians in America, generally speaking, need to be lectured still more about being weak on purpose, trying to be weak? Is the goal to try to be weak? Or Is the goal to do what's right and to say what's true regardless how strong or weak you are or I am because God is strong and because God is right? Does it go back to Abraham Lincoln's quote again? We need to be concerned with being on God's side because God is always right. If that is really the point, well, then what you're arguing for here is just a white flag of surrender in places that we should not be surrendering. The goal is not to try to be weak. Now, the goal might not be that we have to wait until we are so strong that we do it on our own power, but I think that's where some of these prudential sounding arguments are actually just upside down and backwards and inside out, and they're disingenuous because the prudence piece, so-called, is actually where we need to be talking about advancing it despite weakness, personal weakness on our part, and Lehman doesn't pick up on that. He's a big guy. He's got big gestures and arm motions, and he's very aggressive in this debate with Little John. But I think he I think he is overcompensating to some extent in his political philosophy as he's engaging with what rather more disciplined, conscientious Christians are gleaning from historical Protestantism and the history of the church. I don't like that Lehman implies we need to learn more about who Jesus really is if we agree with his opponents. I think that's manipulative. I think that is a cheap shot. But he says Christian young people need to be respected as God imagers or young people in general, even if they're not Christians. They need to be respected as image bearers of the Almighty. And we don't want unbelievers to see us as trying to give preferential treatment to the worship of our God. Yes and no. As others have said, I am for religious toleration, but you don't carry that so far that you become a Unitarian. And you don't carry that so far that you become a secular progressive. And you say, it's all the same. There can be no call for repentance. There can be no Christianity. If we say Christianity is every bit as legitimate as every other religion, it's every bit as true, every bit as as valid. We do have to give preferential prime of place to Christ, or we're not Christians. Governmental authority Uh, He points out, and this is actually probably his strongest point, the most interesting one. I want to revisit this in the future, delve into it more and think about it more. He says, governmental authority is only sanctioned in Genesis to protect human life in light of the dominion mandate. So government does not have the right to redefine marriage and the family contrary to the dominion mandate. David French is wrong. Therefore, the job of the government is to facilitate the dominion mandate, not to fulfill it. Romans 13 doesn't mean government has a duty to reward every good and punish every evil. Now, I agree with that. He points out the passage itself speaks to what is owed being paid. And yet, it's like an accordion, right? You could say we want a very, very narrow scope of good being rewarded, evil being punished. Very, very narrow scope. I don't think you can argue from Romans 13 that the government has no right. No government has any right to tell people... You can't blaspheme. You can't work on Sundays or Saturdays. Now, he says to something that bothers me, he says that government in the Bible is divided between that which shelters, on the one hand, the church, God's people, and that which persecutes the church. But he also says in the Q&A portion after the Old Testament Israel government and New Testament church government both alike are totalitarian. Were they though? Were they? He says, ah, it says, be perfect as I am perfect. Ah, you know, though, that's God speaking. Be perfect as I am perfect. Not so fast. Not so fast. I see this might be the problem that it's all or nothing. You can't imagine any amount of adherence to godly government from the Bible, Without it becoming totalitarianism, that might be part of the problem here, where you just you don't see religious liberty as being at all compatible with calls for a return to the Protestant magisterium. I do want to delve into Genesis nine a bit more. I have some work to do there, but again, with the Q and A, Bradford Littlejohn is asked what differentiates his position from so-called Christian nationalism. And he points out that what spooks a lot of people about Christian nationalism is this idea that God needs America. No, no, God doesn't need America. We want to avoid that. But if we have a proper view of God and a proper view of his word, we easily will. If we acknowledge the first table of God's law, we maximize the room for religious liberty properly defined. We also will correctly understand the limitations of placed on any nation, including but not limited to the United States of America. God doesn't need us. We need God. That's the big idea. That's why we want our government to know right from wrong, to know good from evil. And Jonathan Lehman, for his part, he's asked a question about blasphemy having been horizontalized, which is to say we only regard blasphemy in terms of how we affect one another. We're not regarding blasphemy in relation to God at all. And Lehman's response to that is essentially, America's done a lot better than Europe with disestablishmentarianism. And that Romans 13 wasn't written as a critique of Caesar. Which, you know what? Um, that may be the case. That may be a fair point. And yet, it is a critique of Caesar. Whether that's its primary purpose, the primary intention... It is. It implicitly is a criticism of every government that rewards evil and punishes good. And also it's a blueprint. I mean, there's another question that's asked of both Little John and Lehman. What do you say to Christians in Iran or China? They're not having the same kind of a debate right now about religious liberty in their countries. They just want to be free to be Christians and worship and raise their families. That's all they want, and they are not facing the same challenges that we are here in the United States. Lehman says, "I would encourage them to build strong local churches." Little John says, "I would encourage them to pray for their own Constantine." And that's a big statement. That's a big statement. I I don't know that that would be my answer. It's really bold, but it does highlight. I think, and I was telling my wife this yesterday had to pause and go out and say man I think this is I think this is actually the dividing point what do we make of Constantine but on the one hand you have the view that the worst thing that ever happened to the testimony and health of the church was Constantine putting an end to the persecution of Christians and embracing the church and then officially recognizing Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire. On the one hand, you have those who think that's the worst thing that ever happened to Christianity. From Constantine to Charlemagne to Luther and Calvin, that was just the worst. And it corrupted our Christian faith, our Christian doctrine and practice, our testimony. On the other hand, you have people who have come to terms with it, who have come to peace with it, who've read Christians like Eusebius or Augustine. And who think, you know, that was providential. That was God's grace. That was God's plan. That was good. That was a happy answer to prayer. I think much more could be said about that point in particular, several of these other things. But I just want to close out with a final thought here. We have to keep in mind, as we're talking about religious liberty, regardless of what others affirm, recognize, protect, respect. We always have the liberty in Christ to follow, to obey. It might cost us. It might cost the people that we love. That doesn't mean that we don't have the freedom and the liberty from God. If God has called us to something, then we do have a right to it and we do have a a liberty. There, others may punish us. They may hate us. They may say all manner of evil against us for the sake of that righteousness. In the midst of all these debates, I would just encourage you, let not your heart be troubled as though what's being debated is whether you are going to be able to be a Christian. No, you can be a Christian, even if it costs you dearly, even if it costs you your life. But then our hope and our promise is if it does, your reward is great in heaven. So where's our trust? Where's our hope? Where's our faith placed? It has to be in Christ regardless whether we agree with any of these guys, none of these guys, some combination of several of them, or we have no idea. I've read the end of it. God wins. And those who are in Christ have life everlasting. That's what I'm clinging to. We surely must continue to debate these other things in the meantime. By God's grace, we can know truth. We can do what's right. We can serve God and love one another and honor all to whom honor is due. But I gotta run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.